Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Oh, um, sorry. Sorry about that. Sometimes thinking about history and hauntings kind of just, you know, brings out the weird side in me. Anyway, I'm Emily Reitner, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer and hear more history and haunts every month, go to the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Now, where did I put that Ouija board? Oh, no. Oh no, I should have just listened to Denise and not tempted anything. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 192nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are bringing you another haunted university, Penn State University. We're going to be joined by Matt Swain, who has actually written the book America's Haunted Universities. And you might recall that he joined us on the Patsy Cline episode. He's also written a book about country music and the hauntings in regards to that and rock and roll. So we encourage you to check out all of those books. And even before he wrote America's Haunted Universities, he wrote a book specifically on the hauntings at Penn State. So it's something he's very familiar with and he happens to work there. So he's going to join us in just a bit for that. 
Before we get into that, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Tom. Hey, Tom. Karen. Hello, Karen. Sarah, who spells her name with an H at the end. Hey, Sarah, with a H at the end. Samar or Samar. Hello, Samar. Curtis. Hello, Curtis. Wes. Hey, Wes. And Franklin, who spells his name with an L-Y-N at the end. Hello, Franklin. And now this moment in oddity. And this moment in oddity was suggested by listener Kelly Helter. Lord Todd Wadley was a doll made by the Steiff Toy Company. The company was based in Germany and started by Marguerite Steiff in 1880 and specialized in plush toys like teddy bears. Lord Todd Wadley was a male doll that stood over a foot tall and he was made out of leather. He was given to Mary and Barbara Joe Carstairs by her girlfriend Ruth Baldwin. Joe Carstairs was a British eccentric heiress to the Standard Oil family who made a name for herself in powerboat racing in the 1930s. In her day, she was known as the fastest female speedboat racer in the world. Before she got into that, she served during World War I in France with the American Red Cross driving ambulances. She helped rebury the war dead after the war ended and later in Dublin during the Irish War of Independence, she served with the Women's Legion Mechanical Transport Section. She was very different for her time. She tattooed her arms, dressed like a man, and was openly gay. She had affairs with numerous famous women, including Dolly Wilde, who was Oscar Wilde's niece, Greta Garbo, Tallulah Bankhead, and Marlena Dietrich. She bought an island named Well Kay to retire on, and she ruled there like a queen. But what truly made her unique was Lord Todd Wadley. Joe was never without the doll, unless she was racing, because she feared losing him. She treated the doll as though it were a living child, and she spoiled it with gifts. She bought him cowboy outfits, dolls of his own, Italian-made shoes, a small wristwatch, sailor suits, revolvers, a Bible, and suits from Seville Row. Sculptures were made in his honor along with portraits. One portrait featured Lord Todd Wadley before a mirror with his reflection that was titled Narcissus. Joe talked to the doll, and when she finally died in Florida at the age of 93, she had the doll cremated with her. Having dolls and toys as an adult is normal, but keeping a doll and caring for it as if it were a living child and as your only companion certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of March, on the 21st day in 1943, Nazi General Rudolf Ferrer von Gerstorff attempts to assassinate Hitler. Throughout World War II, there were many attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Nazi General Gerstorff was one of those men who participated in an elaborate plan to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The Nazis had intercepted a bunch of Soviet weapons, and they were stored at an armory in Berlin. Gerstorff was a weapons expert, so he was tasked with taking Hitler on a guided tour of the former Soviet arsenal. He realized that this was a great opportunity to try to kill the Nazi leader, since he would be right there next to him. Gerstorff stuffed two bombs in his pocket and began the tour. This was going to be a suicide mission. 
The plan was to ignite the fuses, which would take 10 minutes to detonate before they exploded. Gerstorff was going to lock Hitler into an embrace. As it turned out, Hitler was in a big hurry when he arrived at the armory. He had no plans to stay for 10 minutes, so there was not enough time to detonate the bombs. Gerstorff had to make a mad dash for the toilet where he secretly detonated the bombs and his plan remained unknown to Hitler, who would have had him killed. Gerstorff spent much of the rest of his service supervising the construction of mass graves following a series of mass executions of Poles perpetrated by the NKVD, which was a Soviet police organization. Penn State University is a part of the Big Ten East and has 24 campuses across the state of Pennsylvania. Not bad for a school that had small beginnings and only 64 undergraduate students. Penn State was one of the first land-grant universities in America and was founded as an agricultural school. The main campus is situated in the Nittany Valley between Nittany Mountain and Muncie Mountain. The university sits on a limestone shelf which lends itself to capturing energy and it is said that this may be one of the most haunted universities in America. Matt Swain, author of America's Haunted Universities, is going to join us to share stories of spirits that continue here in the afterlife. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Penn State. Pennsylvania State University has meager beginnings as a farmer's college. A man named James Irvin was a prominent ironmaster and agriculturalist in the 1800s. He entered politics and was elected twice as a representative to Congress for the 14th Congressional District in Pennsylvania. He ran for governor of Pennsylvania in 1847 but did not win. Irving was also a landowner and had several acres in Center County. He donated 200 acres for the founding of the Farmers High School, which was chartered in 1855 by the General Assembly of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It was one of the nation's first colleges of agricultural science. The land was located at the junction of Penns and Nittany Valleys near the geographical center of the state. Irving was passionate about mixing agriculture and science and had a certain vision for the new school. I wonder if one of those visions was that it was going to become one of the most haunted universities in America. I'm thinking no. Oh. Irvin wrote to the executive committee of the Pennsylvania State Agricultural Society that if we would add dignity to manual labor, if we would have it held in honor by the community, we must associate it with science. And if we would lessen the expense of acquiring scientific knowledge so as to bring the cost within the means of the farming community, we must connect its acquisition with manual labor. These, as I understand, are leading objects of the Farmers High School of Pennsylvania, and if, as it has been suggested, such an institution properly organized, with the aid of surplus funds of your society and a reasonable appropriation from the state, can afford to the young men of Pennsylvania able and willing to work when work is required of all and esteemed honorable, a scientific practical education at an expense of less than $75 per annum, it would be productive of benefits to the community, the full extent of which time only can develop and future generations only tell. Evan Pugh was the founding president. He planned a curriculum based on the scientific education he had received in Europe. He joined other leaders in supporting the passage of the Morrill Land Grant Act through Congress in 1862. The act enabled states to sell federal land, invest the proceeds, and use the income to support colleges, quote, where the leading object shall be without excluding scientific and classical studies to teach agriculture and the mechanical arts, engineering, 
in order to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes and all the pursuits and professions of life, end quote. The Farmers High School would then become Pennsylvania's land-grant institute, and the name was changed to Agricultural College of Pennsylvania. In 1874, the college would become Pennsylvania State College. The mission of Penn State has been research, teaching, and public service, and when Matt joins us in a little bit, he will talk a little bit further on that. And don't ever forget it was run by President Pugh at the beginning. (laughs) I hope that's how you say his last name. It's P-U-G-H. I just like it. Excuse me, President Pugh. May we please have your attention? And honestly, the reason why I said it that way, and that probably is how you say it, is I actually had a friend in school, and that was her last name, was P-U-G-H, and it was Pugh. And you can imagine how teased she was in high school. I know if there's any listeners, I'm just having fun. I don't mean to offend anybody. (laughs) I just think it'd be fun to have a president named President Pugh. (laughs) In the 1880s, Penn State expanded the curriculum to include far more than just agricultural science. Liberal arts were introduced along with engineering. This was championed by then-President George W. Atherton. He and his wife will come up again later when we get to talking about the hauntings. The early 1900s brought cooperative extension and outreach programs, which grew into other campuses branching out across the state. This would give students a better chance of attending the university during the Great Depression. And the reason why is because, obviously, they didn't have a lot of money for traveling and to try to get into the city and even to move to be closer just was not feasible during the Great Depression. So they decided, well, if we start these extensions, it'd be easier for kids to come. In the 1950s, research brought advances in building insulation, dairy science, diesel engines, and other specialized fields. It was also in the 50s when Penn State would officially become a university under President Milton S. Eisenhower, who was the brother of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. In 1967, the Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center was established as a college of medicine with a hospital in Hershey. And if I had to stay in a hospital, wouldn't it be great to be in Hershey? (laughs) Or it smells like chocolate. It's like that could heal you very quick. I would feel so much better quickly. In 2000, Penn State merged with the Dickinson School of Law, and it also graduated its first students enrolled in the world campus. The university has had a huge influence in the state. It is the largest school in the state and has the second largest impact on the state economy, generating an economic effect of over $17 billion on a budget of $2.5 billion. That's pretty amazing. A main outreach of the university is philanthropy as well. Its Grand Destiny campaign raised over $1.3 billion. Unfortunately, Penn State has had a black mark in its recent history because of an assistant football coach employed by the university named Jerry Sandusky, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware of this. As a timestamp on this episode, just this last week in March of 2017, former Penn State President Graham B. Spanier was found guilty of child endangerment related to Sandusky's crimes. Those crimes were sexual abuse on boys that he had groomed through a charity he started called The Second Mile. The scandal broke out in 2011, but Sandusky's crimes went on for decades before that. And several university officials were implicated for covering up or not reporting the crimes. And that seems to be the case with this former president of the university is that he got caught up in that because they didn't take care of the issue. It kind of reminds me of what happened with the Catholic Church and the priests that were molesting boys there. Denise, just kind of, let's see if we can sweep it under the carpet and pretend like it's not happening. 
Which that always blows my mind. There's some things, no matter what the implications might be, you don't sweep under the carpet. No, and I'm one of those people, I don't know, I might be on the extreme. I'm not a big proponent of the death penalty. I think there are a few cases in which it should be used. But when it comes to child molestation, I'm like all for death penalty. Yeah, I don't know that I would want the death penalty. I'd want more like the torture slowly until they're screaming for death, but just keep them right on the edge kind of penalty. (laughs) Okay, that might be better. Yeah. Now we're joined by Matt Swain, who works at the university and has documented the hauntings that have been going on there. You're a research writer there. So what exactly do you do at Penn State? So so basically, and you have to remember this, this causes a lot of awkward conversations in my career. I'm sure. uh, You know, (laughs) During the day, I'm a, I'm a research writer, and, and what I do is I find research papers and studies and conferences that uh, our, our researchers are going to, and then I take that paper, I do some interviews, and I try to create articles and stories and news releases, basically talking to people about what these researchers are doing. So that's kind of my, my day job there. It's actually, for me, it's it's not too far away, believe it or not, from what I do at, at night when I'm writing these ghost stories, which is really try to use a skeptical mind, uh, but open-minded uh, approach to uh, stories and accounts and, and try to get the information that I think people would really want to know. That's, that's kind of my job. Now, is it because you were at a university that you wanted to look at ghosts at universities, or was there some other reason why you decided to go down that route? You know, being a Halloween baby, I'm doing these uh, these feature stories around Halloween, and I, I came up with this idea to do a feature article about the ghosts in my hometown. And I found several, but I didn't find enough. So I thought, well, I, as a student at Penn State, I remember hearing some ghost stories there. Wonder if there's anything to that. And what I found was that that Penn State, I mean, I have to say. Acre for acre is probably more haunted than, than any other, than maybe even a Civil War battlefield. I found dozens of stories and tidbits and rumors and ghost lore about the university itself. Just as a kind of a fun writing project, after I wrote the feature story, I just started collecting these stories about specifically the ghost stories of Penn State, but I've also started to find these stories throughout other universities just all over the country. So I, I just started collecting these ghost stories, and uh, eventually I had enough that I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to put together a book on the ghosts of Penn State. So I did do that. I called it Haunted Valley, and I self-published it. And then that led, because I had so many of these other stories, that led to publishing America's Haunted Universities, which covers as many universities as possible. As I'm writing this, I start to think in the back of my mind because, you know, I go through some of these pressures too. I'm a science writer, I'm a research writer, yet I kind of write this woo-woo stuff on the side. Mm -hmm. For me, as I'm writing about ghosts of universities, and what I'm discovering is that almost every single university has, has their ghost stories, I'm always wondering why does that happen? Why in a area where, in a, in a time in your life where you're supposed to abandon all this kind of childish, spooky stuff and embrace science and re- be rational and, and all those other things, why, is, why are universities so haunted? So that's been kind of 
uh, almost like a research project for me that grew out of these two books. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. When it comes to the universities, you really have to get one-on-one and talk to people because I don't think a lot of universities want that information out there. They don't want to be known for that specifically. Right. I'm very fortunate in that Penn State is very open to it. And my boss actually uh, had me lecture on it, on ghost stories. I think especially when they see my approach to university ghost stories, which is basically if you don't believe in ghosts, that's okay. The fact is ghosts may or may not be true. But one thing that is absolute is that ghost stories are a fact and they cross all these different universities. And and so there is something, there's social facts, there's something about them. And they're a phenomena that I really believe deserves to be studied and, and talked about. And, and that's kind of what I do when I, when I talk about haunted universities, because I'll tell you, when you get into university towns, you get some very militant skeptics. I mean, there are people who are skeptics, and then there are people who that even if you mention ghost stories, they, they want to hush it up. And mm-hmm. what I find is that these ghost stories provide so much value, and they're really a sign, and I'm not trying to be punny about it, but they're really a sign of school spirit. One of the things that I, I, like, I like to talk about is that universities have transitory populations. So you have students coming in for their freshman year. You have students leaving, hopefully, in their fourth year, but more often than not in their fifth year. It is hard to maintain a culture with the population shifting so much. So what I think one of the roles that these ghost stories do is they kind of provide a community and they provide a almost like a mythology for the students that so I I teach a class in journalism and I take my students every once in a while uh, on a a ghost tour of Penn State. And one place I I start is at this uh, it's a quarry right outside of uh, used to be a quarry right outside of the main building in Penn State, which is called Old Main. And originally, the university invested quite a considerable sum uh, in getting a mule named Old Coley. 
And old Coley's job was to take the limestone from this quarry up to the old main building site. And the limestone that was used there was used to, to build that old main. There's been three old mains since, but the original old main was built by old Coley. And old, the other job that old Coley had was he would actually work in the fields with the students. Back then, if you were a student at Penn State, you would have to uh, pledge so much time to either work on the university farm uh, or on some neighboring farms where the, the farmers needed the extra help. So they became very attached to uh, Old Coley. And when Old Coley died, they preserved his bones. And then after Old Coley died, this, the places where this skeleton was kept, these ghost stories would crop up. People would hear hoofbeats coming down the hall. Some people would hear the, the hee-haw of a mule late at night. There were even a, a few stories of people actually encountering the ghost of Old Coley whether it was at a dorm where the skeleton was. Uh, later, it was moved to the library, and it sort of moved all over the university, which, according to some rumors, was because, you know, the ghost of Coley, they were trying to appease it and try to get it in the right place. Penn State's probably one of the only universities that I've studied that has the ghost of a, of a mule uh, on campus. It, and you're laughing, and, and it's, it's, it's a funny story, and, and trust me, one time I at a lecture, I mentioned that we have a ghost of a jackass. Mm-hmm. And the guy that was in the front front row owned a mule farm. And he quickly schooled me on the difference between a jackass and a mule. But but in any event, in the last two or three minutes, I gave you this ghost story about old Coley. But I talked a lot about the culture of Penn State, which is hardworking. We have this ethics. We have a great ag program. We have this idea of right now, in fact, there is uh, the THON that's going on, which is a a big charity event uh, going on this weekend. There's also this element of volunteerism about service, that if you're a student, you're going to offer so much service. So all of those elements of our culture gets embedded in the ghost story itself. And so that's one of the reasons why I think universities have so many ghost stories, but there are, you know, several other reasons too. I don't think I've ever heard a story about a ghost mule and to think of one being at a university, (laughs) I wouldn't have put those two together. Well, the other thing is that it came very close. Actually, Old Coley was our original mascot. So instead of the Penn State Nittany Lions, we could have been the Penn State Mules. Well, I already, when I would watch Penn State, I would be like, what is a Nittany Lion? So I looked it up, you know, and saw that it was because of the mountains that you have there and stuff. But right. uh, yeah, that's much better than mules. <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned that he was taking limestone to build this building called Old Main. Mm-hmm. And that struck a chord with me. I don't know, maybe a lot of I universities bet. have that name of a building. But we just did a university in Texas that has an old main building that is haunted. So is your old main haunted too? Our old main, actually, I could not find a, a solid ghost story about old main. My speculation is it's our administration building and it's kind of known to have a lot of stuff suits. So I don't know what, maybe the ghosts don't find it very appealing to, to hang out with the suits. Maybe they want to be out in the fields and in the dorms. Because that's where most of them are. That could be. It's not fun or the stuff suits aren't talking. (laughs) Right, right. Also, uh, Penn State is unique in that we have a shelf of limestone 
uh, underneath the campus, which is, you know, why we were able to, to haul that limestone up. And a couple of the ghost hunters that I talked about said that, that that actually crops up a lot with ghost stories in that there's this element of resonance that these spiritual supernatural energies resonate with the, you know, or get embedded in the limestone and reflected back because it's almost crystalline. So I don't know whether you've ever heard any of those theories or not. Well, I actually had picked up a book last year that's called Limestone and its Paranormal Properties. So there wow. seems to be a lot of science involved in the whole limestone and its ability to, I don't know why, but it seems right. to grab some kind of emotional or spiritual energy or something. So the fact that the university is basically built on top of that explains a lot. Yeah, that's one thing that cropped up. And, and I did mention it in the book. I, I didn't know how legit it was among the... Uh, the paranormal community, though. Yeah, I think there's a lot of them. I know that we do, When it, especially if you've got limestone and then you've got water nearby. It just mm-hmm. seems like there's an increase in some kind of activity. And I don't know if it's that it's capturing it because it's stone or if it shoots off some kind of energy that it can feed off of. Obviously, we're never going to know. It doesn't matter how right. much we test all this stuff. <laughs> right. The, the other thing is with uh, Penn State is that there was actually a murder on campus that has spawned a ghost story. That leads me to another reason why people tell ghost stories. And this is actually based on fact. The, the student's name, Betsy Ardsma, was uh, murdered on campus. I think it was in 69, I want to say, during a break. It was really a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching time at Penn State. And we've had a few, trust me. In this case, after that murder, uh, and it happened in the library in an area called the Stacks. And and let me tell you, I've been in the stacks and it's just just really a maze of bookshelves. And I've been lost in there numerous times. And so it is kind of a spooky place. I love books, so I like being around them. But I could see people feeling those haunted vibes. And indeed, there have been several stories about people feeling a uh, a cold wind chill as they go into certain areas. One student actually said that uh, she saw uh, the ghost. There was a person there. That she was walking through the stacks and noticed a fellow student. And when she looked down, this student didn't have legs. And it was just kind of a see-through spirit. Those stories have, were pretty prevalent, especially through the 80s and 90s. Now, what I bring up is Penn State, you know, and I know a lot of people here Uh, stuff about uh, Penn State specifically and universities in general as being these crime-ridden places. Actually, if you look statistically, universities are some of the safest places you can be uh, in the world. But what I think happens is that it is so safe that uh, people can become complacent. Mm -hmm. And so having this ghost story and attaching it to an actual event, I think, is almost like putting a permanent sign. So if every day you don't read about a rape or a murder on campus, you might start to act a little unsafe. But what this ghost story does is almost make a permanent reminder to you, maybe you want to go with a friend if you're going into the stacks, or maybe you don't go out late at night and alone. I think that's what that story does. And I found some stories across uh, other campuses that I believe uh, have similar reasons to exist. I always bring this up. I mean, these ghost stories have to have a reason to exist because in this case, that story is, I'm going to try to do the math real quick, but decades old. 
Old Coley's story is almost a century old, if not over a century old. So these are really old stories that have become embedded in the culture and that people talk about and rehash and maybe change a little over time. So there's really a reason for it. And the ones uh, that I think involve murders or uh, domestic abuse also comes up in some of these stories. Rapes, I believe they are more cautionary tales than anything. So they're there to, to provide almost a lesson. It's an interesting way to look at it because it harkens back to some of the urban legends that parents would tell their kids about the boogeyman in the woods or the water to keep them away from those to keep them safe. So I had never thought of the fact that maybe having, you know, rapes or murder on campus and having a story that goes with it would keep it alive like that. Well, and I, I usually refer to some of these ghosts as helicopter ghosts because a helicopter parent is a parent that that doesn't want to leave their, their child when they go off to school. And these helicopter ghosts really do have parental type uh, advice, whether it's a cautionary story or maybe even a morality story. So you said that a lot of the dorms have ghost stories. Is this because we found it seems like there's a lot of suicides in dorms. Is that why they're more prevalent in the dorms or are they just like hanging out with the kids? On Penn State, there is at least one place where a spirit is supposedly attached to uh, a suicide victim. So that that did come up. Sometimes these ghost stories reflect popular culture. I think it was probably in the 70s, maybe late 70s, right around you know when the, the exorcist is coming out, that there was a case in uh, Penn State, and I think it was Brumbaugh Hall. Which is a uh, which is a dorm? No, I'm sorry. It was Runkle Hall, which is a dorm at Penn State. And the story goes that a RA was in the in her room, and she started to experience some supernatural phenomena. Her television would turn on and off by itself. She said at one point that she was in the bed, and it felt like the bed was breathing, and mm-hmm. then it felt like the room was breathing. And she tore off into the street and refused to go back into her dorm room. And that story got a lot of legs. Uh, and I think, I don't know whether it made national news, but it certainly lasted a while at Penn State. It, it sort of faded. When I look at that story, I see how connected it is to The Exorcist and Poltergeist. Uh, I have never been able to interview anyone who was either involved in this Runkle Hall Poltergeist case I heard that I, I could not even get a solid date that it happened because it felt to me that it might have made the police report or that uh, it would have made the, the student newspaper, but mm-hmm. it seemed not to. So I, I really feel it's much more, uh, much more ghost lore than anything. Gotcha. There was one incident that it was Brumball Hall, and this became part of an urban legend that I think a lot of Big Ten schools experienced. And in this case, there was a, I think it was Gene Dixon, who was supposed to say that there was going to be a mass murder at some dorm at a Big Ten campus, and everyone thought it was going to be on Penn State. So I don't think I would classify that as a haunting. Uh, It's more of an urban legend. Are there some of the uh, buildings where classes are held that are haunted? 
Yeah, there there are a few, and I'll give you a, a kind of a cool example of this idea where ghost lore meets real ghost stories, and that's a place called Old Botany. And Old Botany, I think, is the oldest standing building at Penn State. Originally, it was a laboratory uh, for um, obviously for the botanists. If I had a second career, I think I, what I could do is go around and tell campuses how not to have haunted campuses. For instance, at Penn State, I would have suggested very, very strongly that you don't put a grave in the middle of campus. But for whatever reason, the powers that be buried uh, one of the one of the great presidents of Penn State, George Atherton, on campus. And it just so happens Old Botany is right across the street from this grave. And there are several stories about people looking into the windows of Old Botany and seeing a woman looking out of the window towards George Atherton's grave. And so the story is, the story gets uh, kind of inflated that it's actually the wife of George Atherton, Francis Atherton, who's keeping watch on the grave. That, to me, has all the earmarks, uh, all the the, the uh, points of being ghost lore. So when I wrote the uh, Haunted Valley, I you know basically said this is ghost lore, and, and here's the ghost lore, and here's some of the stories. And I never really thought too much about it. Afterwards, I talked to a janitor who retired who read my book and then sought me out and then proceeded to tell me some really freaky stories about how he used to clean old botany. And the really unlucky guy had the evening shift. So he was there at night. And the one story that, uh, that always stood out to me was that I think he was vacuuming and he just got finished vacuuming and he uh, was wrapping up the, the cord and suddenly he heard, the smash of glass, like someone was breaking into one of the labs. So he ran to where the, the noise was coming from. And he said the instant he opened up the door, the noise of shattering glass ended. And initially he thought it was a burglar. But really, Old Botany hasn't been used as a, as a lab. I think it's mainly office space. And that area was not a lab at the time. And then he told me later, he looked into it, he said, many, many years ago, it was used as a lab. And, you know, who knows that they wouldn't have glass beakers or test tubes there. So that was one of those stories where, and again, he seemed very legitimate about it. And, and he was one of the guys that told me was a complete skeptic, never gave it a thought until that day. And then that day, he said, really sort of opened up a kind of a door for him. And then he experienced more and more phenomena there and on the rest of the campus. Yeah, when it's somebody who's working on a night shift and they have nothing to gain by telling you, other than people might be like, that guy's a little crazy, the janitor over there. Right. (laughs) It does make it a little more legitimate. Yeah, and notice he he waited till he retired to tell me. (laughs) Exactly. You know. I mean, some people are really afraid of mm-hmm. losing their jobs. Sure. Or... I know we uh, spoken earlier about theaters being haunted. I'm sure they have an auditorium on the campus. Anything going on there? Yes. As a matter of fact, George Atherton's grave sits right up next to Schwab Auditorium. <laughs> and, you know, so not Schwab only do Audit- they have a grave there, but they put it right next to the theater. <laughs> right. I mean, what else could they do? <laughs> 
better. And it, it certainly helped me writing this book because uh, uh, Schwab Auditorium is is one of the most haunted places on campus. And this this building, too, has both that mix of ghost lore as well as some stories that uh, have come from firsthand witnesses. George Atherton is one of the spirit suspects who who haunts the area or haunts that building. But then there is this really somewhat strange story that I found from a magazine. It was a theater. I don't think it was a theater major. I think it was the stage manager was there late at night after a production had left and all the actors were gone. And he said he noticed a figure coming out of, um, I think, the right side, stage right of, of the stage and walk across the stage and then disappeared into the wall. And the way he described this person, which initially I think he thought was another actor, but the, the production didn't have anything to do with the Revolutionary War. And this figure that he saw was clad in what he described as Revolutionary War costume, looked like a soldier, then watched him disappear into the, into the wall. I guess that would be another clue that it wasn't just a, an actor. The fascinating thing for me was that Penn State really wasn't even around during the Revolutionary War, never played a part in it, wasn't even founded till the 1860s. So that element of it is, is kind of fascinating. The speculation is that it was an actor portraying a Revolutionary War soldier mm-hmm. that somehow came back as a ghost. And finally, there's an interesting story about Charles Schwab, who was a Penn State trustee. And Charles Schwab, of course, was a famous uh, industrialist uh, who worked with Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie built Carnegie Library, which is kitty corner from Schwab Auditorium. And the, the kind of shade on this is that Charles Schwab had a falling out with uh, Andrew Carnegie. So he decided he would build Schwab Auditorium, which was even a little bit more elaborate than the Carnegie Building, as it's now called. And there are stories that Charles Schwab is the ghost that haunts Schwab Auditorium and that he's in there, maybe as Francis is looking on Atherton's grave, Schwab is looking over at the Carnegie building, keeping an eye on Andrew. So there, there, you know, there are all sorts of fun stories. And, uh, the, the students at one point started calling, uh, the ghost that haunts Schwab Auditorium Schwabu. Um, <laughs> so that comes up quite a bit. Well, what a benefit to the university to have two big industrialists deciding to one-upmanship each other with buildings on their campus. Right, right. (laughs) Oh, these are great stories. Thank you so much for sharing those, Matt. Is there anything else you wanted to throw in about the university? I, uh, I, you know, I think that's it. I just think that uh, I've come to love these these uh, university ghost stories, and I and I find them fascinating on on a lot of different levels. And and again, I always you know, reiterate, if you don't believe in ghosts, I mean, you've got to believe in ghost stories because they do provide, uh, you know, almost a service to the to the community. Well, I do encourage you guys to check out Matt's books, especially this America's Haunted Universities. I uh, just looking at the table of contents, there are a ton of universities in here that he has covered. I want to make sure that you guys know to spell his last name, it's S-W-A-Y-N-E. So that's how you would look that up. Are you on Twitter or Facebook at all? I am on Twitter at uh, 
Matt Swain Books, and uh, I'm on Facebook, I think, also as Matt Swain Books. I also have a Facebook, Matt Swain. You can always get a hold of me there. I do have mattswain.com, too, if you want to check out the books there. Well, I want to thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and sharing all of these wonderful haunted stories, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Okay, thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Are there spirits wandering around Penn State that include a donkey? Is Pennsylvania State University haunted? That is for you to decide. All right. Well, that was definitely another one of those interesting universities out there. And we'd love to hear from any of our listeners who happen to be going to Penn State. Have you had anything bump you while you're there (laughs) of a ghostly nature? (laughs) Did he just (laughs) shot me a look? (laughs) Yeah, I guess in college, we better be careful about the uh, bumping comments. On our next episode, we're going to be bringing you another one of our legend episodes. We haven't done one of those in a while. We're going to talk about the legend of fairies on our next episode. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We've had a ton of great stuff going on in the Spooktacular crew, Denise, people sharing books that they're reading. One of them is Tammy got this one called Appalachian Lore, Haints, Hexes, Hoodoos, and Such by Philip Kent Church. Doesn't that sound amazing? It does. And I think a few people are a little bit nervous about Alton, but that's okay. We'll be happy to have Tammy with all her new hexes there. Yeah, as long as she doesn't try to hex (laughs) any of us. Exactly. And a lot of you have heard Stephen Pappas join us on a few episodes here at History Goes Bump. And Stephen has decided to start his own podcast out there. I think he's going to launch the first episode in April. And it should be pretty interesting. It's called Is This Adulting? And he's going to be doing it with a co-host talking about millennials just trying to learn how to move from being a kid living with mom and dad into now I have to be an adult and making that transition. And they'll be talking about things that pertain to that. And I also know that Stephen has struggled with depression, anxiety. And so he's going to be talking about that a lot on his show as well. So we encourage you guys to check that out. And I thought it was cute. Kathy Webb Thomas had asked in the spectacular crew if any of us had ever heard of or watched mystery science theater 3000 and it was like everybody just dogpiled in and said uh yeah because i think her husband never had i think i've only maybe seen it once so i'm one of those that was in the minority yeah you you watched it in the periphery when i'd have it on and i heard that it's making a comeback that it's going to be back out on netflix that they're ringing it back And then Savannah Perky had posted this picture about name a horror movie survival rule. And I loved what the spectacular crew added underneath it. Heather says, don't have sex. Kelly says, stay in your group. April, if you hear a strange noise in the woods, don't go out and investigate it alone. Beth, never open the doors or windows. Kathy, no heels. Josh, don't be in a horror movie. (laughs) Well, that's pretty obvious. (laughs) Rhonda, leave post haste. Angie, just don't go to that house. Liz, cardio. Emily, run out the door, not up the stairs. Phil, just say no to drugs. Rhonda, carry. That would be a good idea. Bob, never say, I'll be right back. Rhonda, leave an extra set of keys in the car and make sure your battery is always good. Joy, don't look back when you're running. Kathleen, don't take the Ouija board out of the box. Better yet, don't bring it with you. She also added, don't take a shower and watch where you're running so you don't trip. Zoe, double tap. I said, you don't need to know what that strange noise was. And I would add to some of those, find a weapon. They always run around instead of grabbing a stick or whatever. They're just like, ah, 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 running around while there's a psycho after them. 
Alana says, never run upstairs. Jennifer, never have sex. We've got two for no sex there. Carmen, don't tempt the spirits, monsters, killer, or anything threatening. Tammy, don't go in the basement. Don't wear high heels. You can't run in them. Rhonda, if we band together, I think we could all make it through a horror movie without losing anyone. Together we survive. I think the Spectacular Crew would do really good. I think we'd do really great. Uh, Rhonda also said, we forgot most important one. Don't go to sleep. Cerise, never say I'll be right back because you won't. You won't ever be back. Don't go looking for your friend who no one's seen in several hours. Teresa, don't bring any blondes along. If they want to join, then they need to dye their hair. Megan, don't be around babies, twins, twin babies, twin children, any children, and no one elderly. They all get you. (laughs) Also, please don't look out the peephole keyhole. You already know another eyeball is going to be looking at you, so why bother looking through and peeing your pants? Keep those undies clean and don't bother looking. (laughs) Jennifer, closet doors should be completely open or completely shut and closely monitored for changes. Cerise also added, if you don't know what it is, don't make it a pet, a collectible, or a piece of jewelry. Also, if you don't understand it don't read it out loud (laughs) johnny make sure the bad guy is absolutely dead and the corpse is decimated and they can't do one of those come back to life one last time to finish the job scenes then he said also don't ever pick on a slightly weird boy or girl so i think those are pretty good that's pretty good advice I think it's really great advice. So brought to you here live from the Spooktacular crew. And Denise, I've gotten back into running and I know several Spookies have been inspired to get into running or they're also runners. And I just got this idea that we've got to work on some kind of a t-shirt design because, you know, Disney has Run Disney. So we need to have like Run Spooky or something like that. And then like Ghosts Can't Catch Me on the Back, envisioning something for us to have like running shirts. That would be really cute. But I can't run yet, but I'll still get a shirt. We'll, we'll get you there. We'll get your legs fixed up and we'll have the uh, History Ghost Bump Running Club. That sounds fun. <laughs> and for those of you who can't absolutely run, walking is running as far as we're concerned. Yes. As long as you're going faster than do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. The tortoise did beat the hare after all. Well, that's true. And he did kind of just go do 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 Well, he went a little, well, yeah. But but just walking faster than your normal is considered running. And we have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. First up is Guest, Darlings Four Stars. I love the show. The Sir Darlings, the content is fascinating and the subject matter is some of my favorite stuff. The only problems I have are more or less nitpicks. The audio is equalized to sound a little bit muddy and it sounds like Denise and Diane need pop filters. All their PPPPs really stand out. And the other one is from The Soothsayer, my favorite podcast, Five Stars. Hi, my name is Lucy C. I am seven years old and this is my favorite podcast because I really am interested in ghosts and it combines ghosts and history. You guys are great. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks for listening, Lucy. We we really appreciate that. Is that our first like official review from a child? I think it is our first official review from a child. <laughs> oh, very cool. And I think so far, I'm trying to remember, I think seven might be the youngest one we've heard from. So very, very good. Thank you for the review. So we're glad you're listening, Lucy. And we want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode i have been your host diane and this has been denise you take care now bye-bye this episode has been brought to you by our executive producers we'd like to welcome new executive producer joy Serpus, and thank you to david whiting for his one-time donation and to kathy moormeyer for another donation that last name sounds very familiar it's a pretty cool last name i really like it uh, and you know what i think she's a pretty cool person too she's super cool thank you to you guys Sweet dreams. 